Good morning. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, and on the NSN app. If you don't have it, get it. And another big political week, huge political week, huge week in the history of our country. I think this is going to go down as possibly defining moment for many in politics, uh, defining moments for the presidency or the re-election of Donald Trump, a defining moment for New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio, and for others uh, throughout the country into how they're dealing with unrest in the wake of, on top of that, the pandemic. And uh, we're seeing so much going on simultaneously. Um, Does America, to a certain degree, seem to be unraveling? Not totally unraveling. I think our country is strong. I think it's robust. I think our system is going to survive a lot of the fraying that's going on right now and the divide that exists. But I'm fearful. Um, Not fearful uh, entirely of the republic not fearful of revolution not fearful of wholesale collapse but I am fearful in general that a lot of the things we take for granted safety security freedom freedom of worship and that others and other communities also should take for granted their freedoms, their ability to live their lives without, unfortunately, uh, in the case of someone like George Floyd being killed over a fake $20 bill, potentially. I mean, that is the whole thing here. And it's uh, it's a little bit shocking, and people say that it's it's just it's unbelievable. Um, the experience this week is it's jarring. I'll tell you, just the, the level of fear within our community at the unrest that's going on and the violence, the looting, the lack of protection for personal property or for property in general, lawlessness that has come along with legitimate protest. It's very jarring. And people are afraid, legitimately so, so much so that in our own area of the five towns, we essentially shut down for one day and overnight and declared a curfew because of something that was going on in a neighboring community that people were fearful was going to spill over because they watched pictures elsewhere. People arming themselves, people hiring armed security guards, all out of a fear that lawlessness and looting was potentially going to come to our doorstep. And it's not illegitimate fear. 
in a sense that there was this there was this feeling that government was not going to protect its citizens and that is the first duty of government and there is that very strong fear and government needs to do more I want to say two things kind of before we get to the politics of it number 1 this is a great country America is a resilient country. It's a great country. Racism has been a problem, such as just like anti-Semitism. But racism, we have a legacy of a stain of slavery. We have a stain of racism for many decades. Didn't end, unfortunately, with the civil rights movement. It didn't end then. It still exists. I wouldn't say it was pervasive, but what happened in Minneapolis is shameful. It's a stain. It's a stain on our society. The idea that you can even watch with horror that George Floyd lost his life because a sworn officer of the law detained him and killed him in broad daylight in front of people who told him to stop, who begged him to stop, whose colleagues were standing there and for some reason did not have the good sense to get him to stop. And then the resulting protest, we go through this and it's shocking, it's jarring that what has gone on on top of that, the looting and the destruction. People will say, well, one has nothing to do with the other. And unfortunately, um, Unfortunately, they, in many cases, are intertwined. And the people protesting have to acknowledge, and who are legitimately protesting, that there is lawlessness that has been coming along with that. And by and large, it's a question of political will, whether certain politicians are willing to stop it and are willing to take the steps necessary to shut it down. And then, of course, there's the reaction or the overreaction of President Trump, who certainly seems to have been surprised with the ferocity of the protests outside the White House. I'm sure it was jarring for him to be taken to the bunker because the outer perimeter had been breached. And perhaps the political strategy now, or it certainly seems the political strategy, I don't want to say perhaps, it seems pretty evident that the political strategy now is for him to ride his base that will then react to what they see as lawlessness and react to their threats to their own personal safety. to ride that to the presidency. But at the same time now, he wants to politicize to a certain degree. I don't want to say fully politicize because of the legitimate reasons for if you see local police departments failing and flailing and not being able to keep up, although that has changed, and particularly in New York City, and New York City I think is the worst culprit, 
because Bill de Blasio is, has just shown himself to be entirely incompetent. And I think right and left all have agreed on that. And they've agreed on that quite loudly this week, which is uh, pretty incredible that the entire, <laughs> the entire political firmament has woken up to the total failure of Mayor Bill de Blasio. And I know we bash him on this show pretty regularly, but it's it's incredible, even from a political standpoint, how bad he is. If you look at Bill de Blasio, I mean, his one legacy right now is going to be trying to get his wife, Shirley McRae, elected Brooklyn Borough President. And he has basically killed that by poisoning his relationship with the Jewish community, poisoning his relationship with the progressive white community now, poisoning his relationship. I mean, perhaps African-Americans are still with him, but it's kind of unclear. He always had a bad relationship with the uh, white ethnic slash Catholic community. So I don't know. I don't know what his strategy is. I mean, I can't understand. The, the as little as I can understand sometimes what's going on in the White House, I cannot understand what's going on in New York City Hall in the mind of Mayor de Blasio. But you have two guys, both Trump and de Blasio, and I, I do liken the two of them to a certain degree, who feel that they are their own best political strategists, which is always a mistake. It, it goes into the idea, uh, sorry, it plays into the old adage is if you're representing yourself in court, if you're your own lawyer, you have a fool for a client, you should never be doing that. You should never be your own political strategist. And you need somebody to tell you things don't make sense, like going to St. Paul's Church. It just didn't... There was no presidential visits. Anything has to be very scripted. It has to be something that is choreographed from the second it starts to the second it finishes. The visuals have to be good. You have to have a purpose to walk across the street. Say nothing of clearing the, the protesters with tear gas, or it wasn't tear gas, some other chemical agent, pepper spray, whatever it was. To say nothing of that, there has to be a purpose involved, a message involved. You just stand there with a picture of the Bible, and then you bring your staff up, all white people. I don't want to be racist about it, but what kind of image are you talking about here? And the president has trouble in general projecting empathy. That's just a thing. Now, many people like that. They like they feel that he just projects strength and attack all the time, and that plays to some people, and I understand that. But I do think that occasionally you have to show a little bit of empathy. You have to show a little bit of understanding for how the other side thinks and for what they want and what they care about. Because the 2020 election is going to be a referendum on the incumbent. It's going to be a referendum on Donald Trump. And he wants it to be a referendum on Joe Biden. And that is probably just not going to happen. Whether it's the pandemic, whether it's the economy, whether it's going to be racial injustice that's going on here, whether it's going to be a host of other things having to do with this administration. That's where it's going to be a referendum. And the polling right now is is not looking particularly favorable for the president. But the St. Paul's Church symbolism, it could have been good. Had the president gone there and read a passage from the Bible, 
the Holy Bible that he was holding up. It said he just seemed like it was, we're going to have, we have a prop here and we have a backdrop and I'm just going to take some pictures without any type of messaging. Again, purpose. What are you doing? You have, time is very valuable. Attention is very valuable. These are very valuable commodities. And you squandered them at the, Ken, with the backdrop, of course, of clearing out people who were protesting peacefully, creating what was called essentially a battle space and dominating that battle space to use the words the administration has been using, whether it's Attorney General Bill Barr or the Department of Defense uh, Secretary Mark Esper or the president himself, that you don't want to look wimpy, you want to look strong. So if he got there and got on his knees and asked everybody to pray with him for the country, pray with him for George Floyd, pray with him and to talk about the symbolism of, of burning a church and how offensive that is to Americans and how religion should uh, unite us and calling to God for guidance in these turbulent times, that would have been a great message. Instead, it just seemed purposeless. They're totally without purpose. And I don't want to conflate the two, but I was reminded by a question that Bill de Blasio got from Ruvain Borkhart um, of Hamodia. And his answer, de Blasio's answer, as usual, is just kind of shocking. Uh, he was asked in his press conference, you know, about the isn't now that the demonstrations were allowing the demonstrations to go on and we're allowing hundreds, if not thousands of people to congregate together without social distancing, why shouldn't people be, be able to, why shouldn't New Yorkers be able to return to their houses of worship in order to worship? And what de Blasio said was just, was, was, was just awful, awful in my, from my point of view. I mean, just the awful disdain or lack of understanding for religious people and what they, how, and their very essence and their very being. Prayer is so much a part of our day, not just our day, our, our existence as, as Jews, as religious people, as people of God. And he just talks about having the, I mean, it's hard to understand exactly what he means, but the idea here, I'm just going to read de Blasio's words. When you see a nation, an entire nation, simultaneously grappling with an extraordinary crisis seated in 400 years of American races, I'm sorry, that's not the same question as the understandably aggrieved store owner or the devout religious person who wants to go back to services. This is something uh, that's not about which side of the spectrum you're on. It's about a deep, deep American crisis. We have never seen anything quite like this in the last few days. It's a powerful, painful, historical moment. And now I have eyes to see we're not going to treat it like just any other day. We're not going to treat it like why people outside the bars. Okay. I mean, the idea that Mayor Bill de Blasio treats prayer like just any other thing, like just any other request to get back to normal for everybody else. It's just, it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary the lack of understanding that he has for religion. And I think that that is unfortunate, you know, an unfortunate thing that many, um, I would say, well, it, it seems to be pervasive sometimes on the progressive side. 
And just not this racism has been around for 400 years. Well, I hate to say it, prayer has been around for thousands of years. And why would you not want to allow people to engage in that type of need that they have? Just, again, righteous disdain on the part of the mayor wanting to say, well, government will be able to tell you what to do, you know, in, and we're, we're, we know better because we have to deal with the racism first, and then we'll let you go back to your synagogues. Now, this is a mayor, of course, who targeted, who targeted a Hasidic wedding after they had approved it in Williamsburg, and then went on a ticket blitz throughout the city, particularly in Orthodox neighborhoods, to shut down businesses, to shut down synagogues, to shut down schools, to shut down study halls. But when people want to demonstrate peacefully, that's okay. He shut down a park in Williamsburg where hundreds of mothers and children were there peacefully because they weren't social distancing. But again, of course, he allows the demonstrations to go on. But the lawlessness that we saw in New York City, there's no way that that happens of marauding people going down Fifth Avenue and down throughout Manhattan and looting stores, breaking windows, taking stuff. First of all, that's that's there's no excuse for that whatsoever. But there's no way that happens without kind of the Crown Heights type of let them vent mentality. And this is what Mayor de Blasio's legacy is going to be of this. Um, at the same time, you know, you see things that go on, shocking, shocking things as the police kind of mowing through a crowd. Um, and people, that's really poor judgment. And de Blasio says, okay, so he lost the left. And then you have a policeman being run over in the Bronx. I mean, jarring. I mean, insane. And, you know, they can't protect it. So it's it's so much so that Governor Cuomo actually mused openly about what the mechanism would be to remove Bill de Blasio from office and how that might be done and how that would happen. Well, okay, we must move on. We must. Uh, General Mattis, former defense secretary, four-star Marine general, a man immensely respected, has broken his silence with regard to his feelings with regard to President Trump. I want to preface this, and I, I, I... Why now? I don't know exactly. Um, but I want to preface this, that the Mad Dog Mattis, as he was nicknamed, but doesn't like the nickname. But I love one of the his mantra. This is a something I think he hung outside his office, perhaps inside his office. A Marine is no better friend and no worse enemy. And it's kind of the thing is when you have a Marine who is your friend and on your side, there's no better person to have on your side. But on the other side, he's no worse enemy. That might be the case here. Mattis was a guy who conferred incredible legitimacy upon President Trump and his administration. But now, perhaps, he is the guy who is going to cause at least some 
some introspection amongst Republicans, amongst the people who are still on the president's side about what is going on, because it's troubling when we want to have a situation, we want to introduce the military into a battlefield of the streets of the United States. Number one, I believe that the police have the ability to quell the riots that are going on. We've actually seen it die down tremendously over the last couple of nights. They have the ability, they have the commitment, they have the professionalism, they have the wherewithal to do that. I will not sit here and tarnish the commitment of our police departments because of a couple awful people, uh, awful former police officers in Minnesota. And I think it's just a question of the political will that they have in order to get this done. Do we need active duty military on the streets with tanks and with battlefield gear? I think that's wrong. But Jim Mattis said, and I think that this is a true, and I think that this is the problem. I think that the president retreats to his base when challenged, and he shouldn't do that because he has a lot of good things to run on, and I don't believe that Donald Trump... I do believe that Donald Trump is a master at remaking himself and to molding himself to the moment, but this is the thing that I've said about the empathy thing. Donald Trump is the first president in my lifetime who does not try to unite the American people, does not even pretend to try. Instead, he tries to divide us. We are witnessing the consequences of three years of this deliberate effort. We are witnessing the consequences of three years without mature leadership, Mattis said. Now, I would actually posit that many of our politicians on the de- on the right and the left, Republican and Democrat, are responsible for this of divisive rhetoric, divisive behavior, divisive legislation, divisive everything. I think you have from Democrats, you have from Republicans, and the partisan divide is extraordinary right now. But having said that, Donald Trump is the commander-in-chief. And that's what needs to be, needs to rise to the occasion. I I, want to point out that he was on a call with the governors. And yes, it seems to be he and Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker do not get along. Could be one of those billionaire things, you know, who's got more money type of thing. You know, J.B. Pritzker is one of those guys who can actually go toe-to-toe in the money statistics with, uh, with President Trump. But Pritzker <laughs> made it on the governor's call. I mean, we have the audio of it. We called out the National Guard and our state police, but the rhetoric that's coming out of the White House is making it worse, said Pritzker. And I need to say that people are feeling real pain out there, and we've got to have national leadership calling for calm and making sure that we're addressing the concerns of legitimate peaceful protesters. That will help us bring order. And this is after Trump had said to the governors that most of you are weak, you have to arrest people. And then Trump, all he said was, I don't like your rhetoric much either because I watched it with respect to coronavirus. I don't like your rhetoric much either. I think you have could have done a much better job, and frankly, that's okay. As you know, we don't agree with each other. And that's kind of all he had to say. You, It's just kind of, okay, we disagree. Yeah, Not, let's tone it down a little bit. Let's come together. Let's bring the other side. Let's go ahead and do that. Let's understand each other. We got to work together because we're in this together because ultimately you are. If you're in government with the other people, even if you have 
you are a Democrat and a Republican. There's somebody on the other side in a different level of government. When you have a crisis, you come together. That's kind of simple kind of thing you should do. And uh, it's not happening, unfortunately. We're so incredibly divided that it's just a team sport. Everybody feels that they have to go ahead and win and win every election and can you know continue to win and that's it and uh, right now if you look at the polling uh president trump is not winning okay we're looking at national polls this week monmouth university he is down by 11 points now okay well you want to say the polling was no good in the past the polling was off in 2016 okay grant that all but the president's own campaign right now has starting to spend significantly in three states that he carried in 2016, and they were pretty sure would still be in his column, Ohio, Iowa, and Arizona. In fact, in Arizona, the Republican Senate candidate, if you have a Mark Kelly versus the incumbent who was appointed Martha McSally, if you remember, Martha McSally lost a, a race for Senate. For to fill um, Jeff Flake's seat, but then was appointed to fill John McCain's seat when he passed away. And she's down by double digits in Arizona. That's a state now that Republicans fear they can actually lose. And Ohio, Trump won in 2016 by eight points. Okay, Mike Pence has now been to Georgia two times in the last month. That's Georgia. So, more than 55% of Americans disapproved of Trump's handling of the protests, including 40% who strongly disapproved. Now, obviously, I think there are 40% that will say they strongly disapprove of anything President Trump does. But what you're seeing right now especially in swing states that Trump must win Pennsylvania even Florida Michigan Wisconsin about even but Michigan Pennsylvania Arizona these are states that the president must win in order to get reelected and he is not helping himself currently with his handling the crisis. Now, he wants to be tougher. He wants to rally his base. He wants to do that. But remember, a lot of the polling, you know, Donald Trump got everybody, essentially, who was undecided going into the last days. And he also ran against somebody who was beyond unpopular, who everybody knows. Joe Biden, gas and all, all the things you can think of over the last 30 years. He's a guy that people like. And he gave a great speech this week in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia after he came out of the bunker talking about the need for Americans to come together, showing empathy, talking about how America can rise above the challenge. And I think that that was what the opportunity that President Trump missed when he went to the church. That would have been the speech. That would have been appropriate. That's the time you give the Bible. You give people hope. You give people understanding. You read from the Bible. Instead, he did nothing. It had no purpose. It was, and that is a huge missed opportunity. I can't let the show go by without noting the passing of Rabbi Norman Lamb, the uh, Rosh Hashiva president of YU. He was Rosh Hashiva when I was there. Man literally uh, extraordinarily gifted scholar, intellectual, 
administrator, Tamad Chacham, the only person to have received both smicha and a doctorate from Yosheber Soloveitchik, Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, just a testament to his extraordinary, extraordinary abilities. And to give appropriate credit, he was the third president of of YU, led YU in through a severe financial crisis, literally saved the institution, rescued the institution, and built it up and kept it going for several decades. Also the Rav of the Jewish Center on the West Side, and a great writer and an incredible, incredible darshan. Uh, his drushos uh, are have been made into books. The founding editor of Tradition. There was nothing that Rabbi, within the modern Orthodox world or the centrist Orthodox world, as he liked to call it, that Rabbi Lamb did not touch, did not improve, did not have his. Uh, hand in, and he was he was incredibly prolific. I will say, when I was in YU, he was a distant figure, um, not. Uh, but that was the nature of the job. It wasn't like you interacted with Rabbi Lamb on a regular basis. But as uh, Rav Herschel Schechter gave him credit to saying that, well, I got to teach, and I never had to worry about fundraising like other Rosh Hashivas had to do. And Rabbi Lamb was able to do that and to raise money. Um, an extraordinarily gifted person, and Yehizikor uh, Baruch. Condolences to his entire family as they lost uh, both a father and mother within a month. That's it here for sp- here on Spin Class here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Josephs.